justice has so many different dimensions, but there's a way in which beauty takes us out of a kind of moral plane and allows us to engage with something um, that um, awakens wonder within us, something more transcendent than questions of what's right and wrong, something that lifts us up and allows us to imagine in, in more expansive ways. And so I always find that justice alone feels like it's not enough for the liberatory work that we're all engaging in, the kind of social change that we feel like we all need, that beauty allows us to lift our gaze a little higher. Welcome to Creativity Pioneers, a podcast by the Moleskine Foundation that aims to spark dialogues and reflections on how creativity is understood and talked about, showing us its use for positive personal and social transformation. I'm your host, Adam Asane, Moleskine Foundation CEO. Please subscribe now to our podcast on the platform of your choice and tune in for new episodes. I look forward to reading your thoughts and comments on our social media channels. Today, we are chatting with Dr. Sibabatso Manueli, Senior Director of the Atlantic Fellowship of Racial Equity Program, an innovative leadership development program designed to combat anti-Black racism in South Africa and the United States. Sibobatso is also author of the book, Sudan's Southern Problem, Race, Rhetoric, and International Relations. As part of her incredible experience and background, Sibobatso was a departmental lecturer in African history at the University of Oxford, where she was the first African woman faculty member. She was also a lecturer at Stanford University. Please follow her podcast, Race Beyond Borders, where she raises new questions about race and blackness beyond geographical divides. In this episode, Sebabatsu will share her story and her vision through three keywords, beauty, justice, and structure. Three concepts that are part of her personal and political quest to impact society. When, when we talk, when I ask you, you know, about the this idea of, of this concept that we are exploring of creativity for social change. What would be your three words and why those three words? And I can choose any of my two sets of three words, Adama. <laughs> Anything you want. Okay. Yeah, creativity for social change. Um, I mean, I think for me, um, the word beauty uh, and justice, those two words seem to be um, really connected to what it means to use and deploy creativity to bring about the kind of social change that's uh, positive and beneficial to people. Um, what's interesting for me about the combination of both beauty and justice is that, of course, the latter is about achieving right relationship between humans uh, and uh, more than human uh, creatures. Um, so the planet that we're on. So justice has so many different dimensions, but there's a way in which beauty takes us out of a kind of moral plane and allows us to engage with something um, 
that um, awakens wonder within us, something more transcendent than questions of what's right and wrong, something that lifts us up and allows us to imagine in, in more expansive ways. And so I always find that justice alone feels like it's not enough for the liberatory work that we're all engaging in, the kind of social change that we feel like we all need, that beauty allows us to lift our gaze a little higher, to expand and explore and um, get out of the diet of right and wrong, get out of the binaries of um, good and bad into something that just is. Um, and the, the reason I think that's important is because I think it's easy in the work of justice to be caught up in a sense of, you know, self-righteousness and a sense of feeling like you've got, you know, all the answers and other people are altogether uh, perhaps, um, you know, not right, altogether awful. Um, and and, and there, there's something that allows us to get outside of ourselves in beauty that I think can be a powerful combination. It allows us to explore the power of concepts like love um, in the work of liberation and freedom. You miss one. Oh, uh, the third word. Okay. Um, so all three. Um, Adam, I've got so many words. So justice and beauty for sure. And I connected it to wonder a little bit. I guess structure is, is an interesting word for me because it's much more functional than um, the, the, the former two. Um, and yet in many ways, I feel like it allows there to be a dance between them. Um, so I find structure to be um, the sort of thing that allows us to move from formlessness to form, uh, from um, this um, uh, expansive sometimes nothingness to something that's a vision and a direction and a path. And um, as someone working in the leadership development space, thinking of structure um, is something that's quite important for me because it allows us, at least for me as somebody operating in the spaces I operate in to, to, um, enable, uh, to be able to communicate clarity to people around me. So it, in, in many ways, I feel like uh, beauty depends on structure. And I think social change in part requires the kind of structure that holds. It's a bit of infrastructure, right? Well, what is, what is that? Um, what is the sort of thing that allows us to hold um, the changes that we're seeking to bring about in the world? For me, structure also has multiple dimensions, right? They have, I've talked a little bit about that social aspect of it. Um, how we relate in teams and working together, using structure to bring about the kind of change we envision. But I always think that there's also an inner infrastructure that can be quite powerful. What is that deep capacity within myself, ourselves, that allows us to endure challenging um, times to be able to proceed along a path of clarity despite the odds? Um, I think there, there's some kind of inner metal that structural also harkens for me about my own posture in the world, what allows me to stand upright in the fullness of my dignity. So anyway, those, those are my <laughs> those are my three words: justice, beauty, and structure. No, this is this is extremely interesting, and and you know, I love to go a little bit deeper in some of those words. Um, 
Because the first question I would have on this is, is related to you, to the word you choose, justice. Uh, mm. Obviously, that's um, a very important, um, a very important word and concept that, that stays within your work as, as a professional, as an academic, as a researcher. Um, but I found this, the word justice takes a very interesting uh, connotation with you um, because you are, you were born in Lesotho. Yes. Then uh, you live now in South Africa. You studied in the UK. Uh, you worked in the US. And at the moment, you know, what you're doing is at the crossroad of all this and much more. You also have a PhD that has a lot to do with the concept of justice. And, and when we look at uh, the way justice is uh, conceptualized across different cultures and we take it, obviously we can take uh, some parts of the African continent, you work in South Sudan, but then you have also a lot of experience in, uh, in, in the concept of justice within the South African uh, world, but then also obviously have a lot of knowledge in the Western world. And so uh, the UK working and studying and lecturing at Oxford University, you know, and now in the US. Is justice a universal concept? Hmm. What an interesting question, Adama. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, there's something sort of, you know, this is, of course, outside of my field. And, um, um, but, but I think there is something uh, evolutionarily necessary in, in justice, that, 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 there, that there's something in the way humans have come to be as they are today that... Um, requires us to um, make wrong things right, to um, to account, to, to hold um, those who uh, wrong others to account, to um, compensate those who are victims. That, that there's there's something elementary, um, and it, it feels um, to be intrinsic um, in in the ways that I as a lay person understand human um, cultural evolution over time. And I think in, in that sense, uh, justice as an impulse um, in its rudimentary form feels certainly universal. Its expressions, how people understand it, its bounds, um, its orientation, all of that does seem socio-historically constructed, shaped by cultural notions um, and the moral universes that people inhabit, uh, and those feel to be feel feel to me to be really different. Um, and I think that also accounts for <clears throat> the kinds of distinctions, differences, um, the inability for different people to sometimes see eye to eye across cultural and other types of divides because of the kinds of worldviews that shape how people understand con um, justice to, to be constructed. Um, what's interesting is that 
while justice is this sort of emotional uh, impulse within us, at least from, from my perspective, there is an interesting intellectual aspect to it. So it is possible without that gut level um, emotional response to be able to reason with one another and arrive at an articulation of why something is just and why something is not. And so I'm interested in how those logics are communicated across uh, cultural differences. And I, I, you know, just judging from the state of the world today, it does feel to me like um, that um, ability to communicate, articulate, describe, explain, and reason for justice feels to be um, of, of incredible import. Um, certainly that's that's the case in uh, places where there have been tremendous human rights abuses, um, crimes against humanity, places like South Africa, places like Sudan, South Sudan, places like the United States. We have such different conceptions of histories as people coming from different groups, different understandings of the present, different interpretations. And so justice as conceived by one group uh, is, is sometimes not the same for other groups, new grievances form. Um, so it, it feels to me like incredibly fertile, rich um, space that is open for narrative construction of all kinds of um, perspectives and purposes. Um, but, but, but I think it also just speaks to the ability of, of human beings to also bridge across difference through um, reasoning. And I think that that's an interesting aspect of, of justice. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. And because uh, I think, you know, there, there is an element of, I don't know, sometimes I feel that, that having a shared idea of, of what justice means and, uh, you know, can, can help us to develop a language uh, that allow us to, to move forward. Um, you run the fellowship, uh, the Atlantic Fellowship for Racial Equity. And... Uh, um, and I'm wondering what part of justice is, is connected to, to, that, to that concept of, of equity. Yeah, so, so like you're saying, I, I, I hit up the fellowship um, wing of the Atlantic Fellows for Racial Equity. Um, in fact, it's actually something that our executive director always says to me that I find quite striking um, or in the shape of, of how AFRI, as we call um, the organization for short, uh, orients itself around the notion of justice. And that's really drawing on the wisdom of Audre Lorde, who um, prophetically, uh, as it were, said that really we have no patterns of relating across human difference as equals. And in, in many ways, the work we're trying to do at the Atlantic Fellows for Racial Equity is to be part of serving the racial equity landscapes within South Africa and the United States uh, by of course um, strengthening the leadership within the fields, but doing so in a way that opens up the imagination for the development, for the creation, for the uh, testing out and experimentation of these new patterns um, and really offering the world new ways of thinking and being. I remember I used to 
I, I did a little bit of work for the African Union a few years ago around transitional justice as a consultant uh, for the inaugural Transitional Justice Forum. And what was interesting for me um, as, as somebody just dabbling within that field, I came in at it through um, the, the, the sort of military uh, history work um, that, I'd, that I'd done on, on South Sudan. So that kind of civil wars world is how I entered the field of transitional justice. And, and in that was quite struck by the kinds of debates within the field where they talked about justice being either perpetrator-centric or victim-centric, and that, of course, in the West, um, uh, Western societies in general, there's a, an orientation towards focusing on perpetrators, such that when a crime is committed, the focus is, is placed on um, imprisoning the, the, the wrongdoer and ensuring that they're punished for what they've done. Whereas in other societies, um, there is a sense of being victim-centered and making sure that there's recompense, restoration for the person who's been harmed. What's interesting for me in the work that we're doing at AFRI is that I think that there's a sense in which there's an emerging third way which um, feels to me to be an orientation towards justice that's future oriented, that's imaginative, that's pattern creating, that's trying to set precedents, that's trying to draw on um, what Howard Zinn calls, um, he calls them uh, these um, uh, dissident moments as it were of, of um, uh, gosh, I'm, uh, well, how come I'm, I'm forgetting this right now? But he, he talks about um, these fugitive moments of human interaction that are actually full of kindness rather than of hatred, <laughs> as is the long histories that we've witnessed of, of war across the world. And so there is something really interesting in the work that we're trying to do just around what are the fugitive moments? What does it look like to find other impulses within us that draw us to imagine new ways of being? How do we draw on the old and the new? How do we find the unrecorded? What are the ways people on the continent were um, thinking of political orientation and organization in the 1200s? What were the responses to climate change a, a, a millennium ago uh, in, in Southern Africa, for example? And what could the future be? So those are the range of questions that we're asking ourselves because for us, the work of the imagination is central to true liberation, which is at the heart of bringing about justice. So in short, it's not just about making right what has gone wrong in the past, but it's allowing the creation of new structures, new ways of being, new social relations that enable us to, to imagine futures where we're all free. You know, this, this resonates a lot with, um, uh, with some of our ideas as, as a foundation, and, and it resonates with the title of this podcast, you know, that is Creativity for Social Change, because there is a connection in our mind that, um, we need creativity to foster new language, and you need creativity to foster radical imagination. And then out of this radical imagination, then new models for society uh, can, uh, can arise. Uh, I also think that it's, it's often difficult to uh, convey 
this message. You know, it's, it's uh, sometimes it feels a little bit too abstract, you know, and uh, uh, so, so we know that throughout history, and, and I'm sure like in your experience, you had moments, episodes, examples that, that you can share in which, in which you say, in which these, these moments, this fugitive moment you were describing, uh, you know, uh, came about. And, and maybe can you, can you tell us something about it? Can you give us a, a concrete example of what you just articulated? No, absolutely. Um, I'm with you on how abstract it sounds. Um, and it's interesting because when you actually um, started um, speaking about how challenging it is to communicate this, uh, I started thinking about what it, um, what it takes or how do we really mobilize groups of people around a movement, uh, around a slogan. And in general, it feels as though social movements across history and time, uh, the most successful ones tend to be ones that are driven by a sense of grievance, a sense of injustice, rooted in that emotion of anger. Um, and, and of course, anger is legitimate in the face of grave injustice or any kind of injustice really. So it makes complete sense. It is of course challenging to galvanize people around something beautiful. Um, it, 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 there's, uh, I, I think beauty, it, it opens us up in a way that's of course disarming, but evokes an emotion or a set of emotions that's not as easy to um, galvanize, to tap into, to um, translate into social action as easily. What it does, what it does do, however, is open up the field of possibility in ways that allow new political realities to emerge and be possible. And so I think part of what's interesting for me in the abstraction of these kinds of conversations is how difficult it is for us to understand ourselves as humans, um, as creatures of story, um, that we find ourselves, we make sense of the world through narrative. Uh, something has a start, a middle, and an end. That narrative arc shapes all of our logic and our thinking and our doing. And I think that that um, what's interesting for me in the power of these um, ideas of beauty that drive justice or creativity for social change, as, as, you, as you've mentioned it, is the narrative potential of it all. An example that speaks to this um, power of story, this power of the imagination to bring about different political um, uh, futures and possibilities is a story um, or an incident from the 1600s in what is today Angola, but at the time the Kingdom of the Congo where um, a woman by the name of Kimpa Vita, uh, who, who came from a decently significant political family, was, uh, and she was of course a contemporary of Queen Nzinga, 
she led a political movement that was quite interesting to me in that realm of the imagination for many reasons, including its resonance to the present, um, as well as the power of the imagination that she was able to tap into. But the Kingdom of the Congo at the time had, um, interestingly, had relations with um, the Portuguese, um, as well as the, um, the Catholic Church in Rome. They had embassies in Europe and vice versa. Their elites were trained there without that colonial connection uh, holding them together. So I'm also really interested in what are the histories of contact between Africa and the rest of the world, including Europe, that aren't rooted in uh, occupation in subjugation, because I think it's those moments that tell us something interesting um, around what is possible in terms of human relating across geographical divides. But back to the story of Kimpavita. And um, the missionaries from, uh, from, from Rome, Catholic missionaries arrived and were, were, were of course proselytizing as they do under the ban of, of, um, of sort of no um, uh, political occupation as we of course saw uh, two decades later, two centuries later um, uh, in the rest of the continent. But what's interesting for me is her ability to weld together and amalgamate uh, traditional African religions with Catholicism in ways that were wielded for new political possibilities in the Kingdom of the Congo. She um, uh, said uh, and experienced herself as being possessed by the spirit of a Catholic saint, Saint Anthony. And uh, in that moment and space of being possessed by the spirit of St. Anthony, of course, is doing really interesting things, gender bending, um, things that are, of course, foreign to uh, the European missionaries there, um, and her ability to, um, uh, to take on and inhabit the kinds of powers that were uh, given to men, and of course, claiming someone who, um, claiming the spirit of someone who's acclaimed and, and, and sanctified as a saint in that way, of course, uh, so there's, there, there are all sorts of interesting power things that she was doing in that moment. Um, but what was striking too is uh, <laughs> she ended up talking about how the Pope was a liar, which of course is very difficult to imagine anyone <laughs> saying to, to, to missionaries at the time or any time really. Um, and, and the reason she mentioned that was because she said, in fact, uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus were Congolese. They were African, they were black like her. What's striking for me is, of course, James Baldwin, a writer, a thinker, uh, who, of course, sh has shaped um, a lot of uh, how many of us imagine the Black experience makes sense of it in the face of white supremacy in, in, in the, 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 the century that has just closed off, is that he, of course, talked about the power of the Nation of Islam when he was in Harlem watching it because of um, its ability to enable people to see God as Black like them. And in fact, this reminds me of a, of a, of a song, Welcome to the, the Savvy's Mind Train. So just hop with me and, and humor me for a little bit. But a, a song by a mutual friend of ours, Adama um, Akuanaru, who, who's got that song on beauty. And in it, she talks about black as the face of God. And it's, it samples um, 
lines from Alice Walker's The Color Purple. Anyway, I make these connections between Kimpa Vita, James Baldwin, Akua Naru, in ways that, uh, to, to, to say that there is power in e being able to frame and shape people's imaginations about the cosmic uh, in ways that led to a political revolution in the Kingdom of the Congo and the overthrow of the aristocracy um, in, in the region, but that of course happened um, after she was burnt at the stake. Her legacy is of course remembered 400 years later. But all that to say, the connections between story and political outcomes are, are really strong in her um, example, but there's an enduring four century long story there about how do we imagine ourselves in relation to cosmic realities and in ways that then shape how we understand our rights in the present as political agents. So I, I hope that <laughs> Um, <laughs> that provides something concrete, even as we talk about abstract con concepts. We were, you know, we we're expecting like uh, an example that happened last week, and you brought us in the past four hundred years of history. Couldn't <laughs> ask anything for anything better, um, I, because I, I hear this idea of what I hear is this idea that in order to change the world, you need to first change the narratives of the world. Uh, but also like in your, in your story, there's also, there's also a storyteller or there's always, there's always, there's, there's, there is a, somebody who create that language. Uh, and, um, and, and, and so at some point there is an individual, at least in this story, there is an individual that create certain language or, and, or embody and is able to articulate uh, a sensation and, and a possibility that that exists in society, and and I think that's interesting. And I'm wondering whether uh, you have somehow this in mind when you when you run a fellowship, because a fellowship is a is a very is a very peculiar model. You know, you, before one of the awards is structure. You know, the structure also connected to the doing. You know, to to make it happen. And a fellowship is a, is a very peculiar model for social change because at the end of the day, you invest a lot of money in very few people to then build structural change. How, how does that work? How can you tell us a little bit about, about the functionality of this model and, and why we should believe in this model? It's a great question, Adama. I mean, I think at the end of the day, like you're saying, we have humans as agents and certain individuals' uh, actions have a significant consequence on a large number of people uh, in ways that um, 100 people's actions uh, cumulatively uh, might not uh, be able to have the same kind of impact. And so I think that question of, you know, what is, what is the power of the individual? What kinds of individuals are invested in in order to bring about that kind of change? Who can be catalytic? I'm just thinking of, um, you know, someone like Nelson Mandela within South Africa's story. You know, he of course is a complicated figure whose legacy and history is uh, of, of course being examined in light of each new generation's um, experience of 
uh, post-apartheid South Africa. Nevertheless, he's he, he's an example of someone whose life had outsized impact. And so, I mean, I think uh, a lot of us working in fellowship and leadership development spaces are driven by an understanding of that catalytic power of one. Uh, or what Margaret Mead talked about as, you know, um, you know, never underestimate the, um, the, the impact of, of a few um, committed citizens. Of course, this is my paraphrasing. So there is something about a group of people, individuals, the power of um, uh, a set of relationships that are generative, um, whose uh, collective impact can be larger than individuals operating on their own. And I, and I think that that's really at the heart of, of, what, we're, of what we're wanting to do. Uh, we, of course, are living, a lot of us, in democratic societies where there are elected officials, there are activists who lead organizations, where there are hierarchies and, and all of that jazz. Even in um, egalitarian, leaderless movements, there are people whose impact, whose shaping, whose ideas, whose visions shape and impact um, uh, uh, collectives um, in, in ways that are um, distinctive and different and outsized compared to others. So there is something about that social dynamic and um, of, of how change comes about that makes investment in the individual difficult to overlook. Um, but what's interesting for me too is that there's so many different ways of leading, right? You, you, you one can lead as, as someone, of course, at the front of, of a room in visible ways, but there are many ways that are less visible that are nevertheless as impactful. I think of the people who are doing sometimes really dark and unhelpful and, and in fact criminal things. Um, I'm thinking of Bell Pottinger and, and their involvement in South Africa's the development of um, politically uh, evocative narratives in the past uh, few years, especially in the state capture years in the Zuma administration here, um, where you know the development of very specific targeted messages um, enabled um, many people to galvanize around uh, destructive processes. So I'm thinking of the um, uh, narratives of white monopoly capitalism, which of course has great resonance within the South African context. The economy is definitely not racially representative. It's very much uh, following the same structures of the past, but this was a deployment of specific stories for um, the, the enablement of particular patronage network to arise within um, that administration. And so what's interesting for me too is the development of leadership in places that are less visible, in places that are um, perhaps influential, but in ways that aren't gonna be recognized per se. So who are the people who are creating the algorithms? Who are the people doing the deep research, understanding what electorates are needing and would respond to at any given time point in time? Who is crafting these messages uh, and so on and so forth. So I think, so I think leadership and uh, individuals and, and their power operate on so many different levels. I think the trick is to not um, have a stale uh, 
perspective on where you expect leadership to emerge and where you expect influential people to be located. I think of the civil rights movement in the 60s, where it was always a handful of very visible men, uh, preachers like Martin Luther King Jr., whose impact is, of course, unquestionable uh, in terms of its impact. Nevertheless, there were women in, in the movement whose names are forever forgotten, <laughs> uh, but who whose impact um, is felt in movements more broadly. And so I think the trick in fellowship move, uh, fellowships in general is to move away from those charismatic singular leaders whose, whose impact um, follows a, a stylized way of understanding leadership to find people in in different places whose ideas are nevertheless as important to invest in. Let, let me be a bit provocative here. Mm -hmm. So um, you make, you make, you know, you mentioned, for example, obviously Dr. King before you mentioned, you mentioned somebody like Malcolm X, you mentioned Mandela, you mentioned this idea of, of leaders that at some point you mentioned other Lord, obviously, um, as leaders, they, they then were able to influence an incredible amount of people and change history, build a new narrative, build a new possibility, and so on and so forth. Um, at the same time, uh, if we look at the, one of the latest movement uh, in the US, but around the world, like for example, the Black Lives Movement or the Me Too movement that uh, has I believe accomplished quite incredible things. All of these movements are faceless. Uh, you know, there is there is not a clear and very specific leadership. The same things now with Nigeria with NSARS. We are. It seems that we are going into a different model that is not necessarily leadership individualistic and leadership based, but is somehow a movement that is that that is that is diffused and is able to aggregate meaning and activism in really unique ways. So how does two things recall? Yeah. No, I, I absolutely um th that's ex that's exactly it, Adam. I think it's the old style of leadership is the is, is the man in front of a congregation who, you know, oh, we, we can point to the leader. I, I think we're in a really productive moment where, like you're saying, there's uh, there are faceless, leaderless movements, um, and that are so so. And and I so I think we're moving in 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 a really productive and exciting direction. And just as an aside. I'm always interested in the authenticity of, of um, questions of leaderlessness. I think leadership perhaps is, operates in different ways. And so uh, perhaps when people are saying leaderlessness, they mean it's egalitarian. But of course, you can lead in an egalitarian way. So um, there, there was questions for me around. Okay, how do we how do we articulate this? But I, in general, I think the trend is is fantastic, and that's exactly why I'm interested in where does influence sit, and you know who is whose ideas are shaping what's emerging. Um, even in um, the anti-apartheid movement, that of course was decades old. 
um, there were many nodes of action, um, uh, activists operating on different levels um, in terms of regional, local, um, others who are working on more continental levels, others connected to political parties. But these movements like the uh, anti-apartheid movement relied tremendously on these nodes that are connected to broader networks because of their ability to galvanize other, others behind uh, an idea. So I, in, in, in general, for me, I, my understanding is that leadership is in service of the whole, whether or not history remembers your name um, or other people even know that you exist, the ability to serve the world by contributing ideas is where leadership, I think, is rooted, be they fresh ideas or ideas that are applied from one place to another or galvanizing a group of people behind ideas constructed elsewhere, that ability to connect people and, and, um, and uh, drive action in a particular way doesn't need to be a face, uh, doesn't need to have a, a, a name or to, to have a hierarchy to justify it. And so I think that that's what's exciting for me is the ability to uh, place groups, um, social change above the self. Uh, and, and I think that that's kind of the, that's the kind of leadership that, um, that the world needs today. Uh, Cause I, I think that there are significant problems with um, an individualistic um, self-serving approach to leadership. So I think there is something quite healthy about the obscurity no. that comes with the influence we've seen today. My, my question here is, is as an educator, so you run you run a fellowship program, but it's a very large fellowship program, it's very, it's very prominent. And basically you select these incredible people in the field of racial equity, and then you invest a lot in them in terms of forming, giving them possibility of uh, ideas connected to lifelong learning to 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 you know to to connect to connecting them within a network and so on and so forth to basically allow them to be more uh, impactful of what they already are yeah. but then the question is you're still forming people it's still education that's right and the and the question is how do you keep it up what I mean is that there's all in education there is always at least historically, there is always um, this uh, almost heterochromy, you know, there is this, this issue with time. You know, whenever, whatever, whatever is happening at an educational level, uh, mm -hmm. it's already a little bit obsolete in terms of language development models and so on and so forth compared to what is happening in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, there's always like this, this, this gap of time, mm -hmm. this jet lag, um, you know, because, because even if, and, I'm, and this is probably part of the question, you know, even if now we, we are praising and we, we absolutely interest and fascinated about uh, these new models of, 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 of leadership, of activism, of movement and so on and so forth, of social movement, that, doesn't, that is not necessarily been articulated yet. We don't, we don't necessarily know how that exactly work. Therefore, like it becomes extremely difficult then to create you know, a program that is able to inform this. Now, the question here is, and this is obviously is happening more and more and more because, because of technology, because of a, num a number of reasons, the curve of innovation 
in society is now so steep that it's almost like impossible to predict what is happening tomorrow. And the tools that we have in order to stay within within this uh, this 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 timing, you know, are are changing more and more because we you know we 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 almost can't keep up. So now the question is, you as an educator, uh, how do you bridge that gap? How do you interpret that gap and how do you bridge it? Yeah, so so I, I think social change, uh, you know, when we talk about that, we tend to think about movements alone, but movements are one conduit or driver of change. Policy change is a tremendously important vehicle. Um, there are laws that are changed. I, I live in a country that, um, where the law was the instrument of oppression and, and the crime against humanity. And so I think legal change, policy change is also a, a, a dimension of change to, to remember that doesn't necessarily um, follow the shape of activism and it's evolving, um, oh, it's even evolutionary process. There's also narrative change that also um, has a different dimension and, and um, action process or theory of action. So all that to say, uh, yes, there are new and interesting, exciting uh, uh, formations that are emerging and uh, ways that leadership is being understood um, in, in certain dimensions, but there are others that are old, um, others that are new, others that are evolving in different directions. And so um, th there are many different planes of change. It's just the first thing I wanted to say. But in terms of the the pedagogical um, question, the, the question of um, the lag between what is, um, uh, you know, the, the educational uh, process as well as the innovation that we can keep up with in society. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I think it is very difficult to be um, uh, altogether current about uh, content in that way. And so I think in, in many ways for us, Content isn't at the heart of what we, or perhaps that you know that particular content, um, that particular um, uh, sort of learning of models isn't at the heart of what our fellowship experience entails. What's at the heart of the leadership experience for us is a, a multi-dimensional appreciation of, of what. Um, of, of the human experience. So for us, there's, there's certainly that learning dimension that uh, where we're wanting to uh, support fellows to have a, a deeper, uh, um, complicated understanding of how structural racism operates in different societies, not just the ones that they're living in. Again, that's uh, a space to inquire, to be curious, but also to expand the imagination in interesting ways. But in addition to that, we're, we're exploring personal, interpersonal and collective leadership. And what does it look like to, to lead in different ways? What does it look like to lead from a place of wholeness, uh, from a place of durability um, in the face of you know, weathering hardships? What does it look like to um, embrace um, uh, rhythms of longevity that refresh oneself allow you you know allows yourself to rest in, in the middle of um uh, of of lengthy struggles what does it look like to um connect yourself to your purpose and to your vision in those ways so 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 those 
those questions, so, so, so there's a learning dimension, there's a leadership dimension, but there's, also, there's a communal dimension. What does it look like to cultivate a community that cares for one another, that challenges one another, that co-powers one another, that has empathy and that is building something with one another, that learns how to dialogue across difference? And then finally, what does it look like to support people to be able to translate ideas into action, to lean into strategy, to lean into um, the processes of uh, connecting uh, themselves to ideas, to, to people and to resources that are needed. So all of these different dimensions of the self, the learning, the leading, the leaning on one another and the leaping from idea to action really shapes what's at the heart. For us, that allows us to have a little bit of an evergreen approach to leadership that enables us to um, support uh, activists, leaders, uh, professors, scholars, thinkers, uh, artists to, who are often on the front lines, who are often responding to many different types of immediate uh, requirements, often reacting to challenges, often serving and are strained to have the luxury of time and space to ask themselves new questions, to embrace a spirit of wonder, to, uh, to experience beauty, relationship, to uh, reconnect with the self, to uh, have all of those, um, uh, to, to have the kind of vantage point that enables them to understand uh, their particular field, the current questions from a complex perspective, uh, where you just get to be a learner in some ways, learning from one another as peers and from best practices in the field. So with all of that, what I'm trying to say is that I think at the heart of what we're wanting to do is to, um, it is a belief that when we are connected to ourselves from a place of power, rooted and grounded in a sense of a larger story uh, of our, our ancestral and social connections, uh, reconciliation with ourselves in the places where we're not whole or in alignment within ourselves, our connections to uh, the work that we're wanting to do to have a long-term uh, ability to serve without um, being burnt out um, and connections that with relationships with people who, who allow us to uh, who call us to account, we, we think that, that that combination, of course, combined with that courage to act on, on new ideas, that combination allows for the kind of leadership that's deep, that's catalytic, and that's just, uh, and, 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 and you know, embraces justice without necessarily just being reactive. And so really what we're wanting to do is connect people to themselves and also expand the imagination uh, to allow new things to grow. Can you give us a few examples uh, about some of your fellows? Uh, who are some of the leaders that you are supporting through, through the fellowship? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've got such an incredible range of people who are doing wonderful work. There's Constance Mohale, uh, who works on... Um, uh, rural land rights in South Africa and, and leads an organization that's really um, one of the few that's tackling the uh, reinforcement of 
really patriarchal traditional authority structures in rural areas um, in, that are in many ways eroding South Africa's democracy and um, in so doing help support and empower um, women um, and other people living in on the margins of South African society in many ways uh, and contributing to the land uh, questions and debates through constructive um, and um, really tangible ways. So working on agrarian and food security issues uh, um, in rural areas. So um, there, there's Connie in that way. We've also got uh, Betsy Hodges, the former mayor of Minneapolis, who's currently working uh, on a book focused on uh, white people. And she's done a lot of work on addressing white supremacy and engaging other white people um, like herself within the, um, the political structures in, um, in Minneapolis itself, but really thinking about what does it look like to establish models of thinking about governance in the United States through uh, liberatory lenses. Um, and so uh, again, leveraging her positionality to, to talk to, to people within her uh, cultural and racial background in that way. Um, and so we've got a wide range of people working on a wide range of issues. Uh, one is uh, Binky Mashiani here in South Africa, and she runs uh, a, a domestic workers union in the country. Um, so, so, uh, What's interesting for us is, is, is really not so much the position of prominence. Of course, these, these of course, leading people in, in many ways um, and not necessarily the size of an organization per se. We don't even look at a, a resume or receive a CV as part of our fellowship application process. For us, it's a question of how people understand their fallibility uh, so one of the application questions for us is, uh, tell us about a time you've been wrong about race and uh, how did you learn? So th that kind of reflexivity for us signals um, an, an ability to um, reflect, a desire to, to learn, to connect, and, um, and an understanding of the self as not necessarily having all the answers um, within uh, oneself in that way, the need for others, the need for learning and being on a learning journey throughout. Uh, and, and also humility about the fact that all of us can get it wrong and, uh, and that part of the work is, um, is leading from a place of empathy. Um, and, and so those sorts of values, those sorts of uh, that ethos really is at the heart of the kind of community we're wanting to build. Um, and so for us, that's a, that's the hallmark of a learning, a learning yeah. and a living community. That, that's make, that makes total sense. And, and I think it resonates a lot with what you said before about finding uh, leadership in uh, sometimes in unconventional places and in unconventional ways. And, and I think it also speaks to this idea of... Um, uh, you know, you not necessarily look at people from a knowledge-based perspective, but you look at people on their capacity to really interpret themselves and interpret society uh, at large. Because going back to that conversation that we had before about how innovation, how education can 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 keep up. Probably, if you 
if you don't have people who has those some of those features of critical thinking, creative think, creative doing, lifelong learning, having a change-making attitude and having those as, as, as skills that they're able somehow to embrace and then through the fellowship they get somehow mm -hmm. uh, even amplified uh, and or consolidated. That that kind of are, it seems that are like the, uh, the, the, the almost like the, the basic ingredients in which you need in order to, you need to nurture in order to create leadership or to, to build leadership in, in, such, a, uh, in such a fast uh, changing world uh, of the moment. Uh, and it also, I guess, it helps to build new language uh, by, by, by having new people at the table and new stories and new conversation at the table, a new experience at the table of social change. So that's... Uh, that's, that's fantastic. You just you just started a podcast. <laughs> yes. And this is uh, this is this is uh, I think it's pretty interesting. It's called Race Beyond Borders. Um, why did you decide to to start a podcast? And uh, and, uh, and 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 yeah. And 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 what do you think is there about podcasts and about uh, what's the value of podcasts and the value of conversations? Yeah, so we started Race Beyond Borders um, really in response to um, an observation we had about um, the global conversation about race um, at the moment, and it's, it's been the case for some time, where for many good reasons, the uh, the, the conversations about race in general and blackness in particular center on the American experience. So they're constrained by, by and, and defined by the experiences of racialization in the United States in a way that inadvertently enables that story to have um, what some would call discursive dominance um, or hegemony. And what's interesting for me in, in all of that is that in many ways, uh, blackness then is, is, is centered through a presentist lens or, or, or a narrow historical period of 400 years, um, uh, so 401, right? Um, based on when the first enslaved Africans arrived in Jamestown, in the United States. Uh, and uh, it, it, blackness is then constructed in response to white supremacy in that way. And so uh, for us, it's really an exploration of what does blackness look like beyond uh, the Western experiences of, of the United States as a principal leader, but then of course, other English speaking places like the United Kingdom and then some exceptions from Africa like South Africa to begin to ask the kinds of questions that open up the aperture for um, interesting reclamations of, of race thinking and, and, and blackness from drawing from a wide range of, of, of geographical and historical experiences to imagine new futures. So for us, the, you know, the creation of new patterns requires um, the population of our imaginations with a wide range of stories that allow for that kind of that magical spark of innovation to emerge. Um, so for us, it's really, you know, we're, we're of course beginning by putting South Africa and the United States in conversation with one another. So of course our first episode was what is the African and African-American exploring um, 
the connections of a black diaspora from the experiences of, a, of an American uh, black woman MC. Um, uh, but but we're, we're also exploring the biomechanics of black hair and what, what science enables us to see from uh, about race from that prism. So it's again, putting different disciplines and um, uh, backgrounds in conversation with race, which is of course uh, a conversation that tends to lean on history, politics and, and, and the humanities in general. In the second season, we're really excited about uh, deliberately exploring race beyond geographical boundaries. So really tapping into the black experience in places like Iran, in places like Colombia. What does anti-black racism look like in places like India or the Aboriginal experience? Uh, it, it, to allow us to populate our imaginations with, um, with, with experiences that are bigger than just North America as it were. Um, happened to Italy. And Italy, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and, and for me, it's places like Sudan are such important case studies because they allow us to see the emergence of anti-Black racism in, in, in a place that isn't rooted in white supremacy, but that has different, um, different socio-historical uh, drivers as it were. But also, you know, so not just black oppression, but what does black joy look like in different places? But to your question about uh, what does the medium of podcasts achieve? Why is conversation important? For, for me, that there's something about that um, African oral tradition history that we have here, right? Where uh, the, the power of the spoken word, um, the power of hearing one another, of storytelling, um, through the, an embodied medium is such a critical part of the wisdom of how our histories on this continent have been conveyed in various societies over time, that, 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 that there's something of the wisdom of that, that medium that um, I think is an, an inspiration for, for a lot of us delving into um, enabling us to, 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 to have this platform. And, and like you're saying, it is a conduit for conversation. What does it look like to have different voices in conversation with one another? I think, I think finally for me, one of the unexpected joys of, of the podcast has been the spontaneity, the laughter, um, and actually hearing people's distinctive voices that convey so much more than the written word, which of course is hailed as all things in, in, in the West. So it's disruptive in an interesting way. Sabi, thank you so much. This was incredible. Uh, and uh, I would continue asking you so many other questions and keep exploring within this, this idea of uh, beauty, justice, and structure. Um, but uh, you know, we need to we need to stay try to stay within within the time of this podcast. And and I hope that we had the chance to to continue this conversation soon. Thanks, Adama. I'd love to hear more about some of these questions from you. So at, at some point, I'd love to flip it all on you and ask for you, what are your three words and why, you know, why this podcast uh, for you? Because I think that that um, learning from your experiences would be would be lovely um, for me too. And just having a bit of a conversation. So either now or another time, no pressure.
but it's um, it really has been a pleasure to to be in conversation with you. It's been uh, stretching and interesting. You've you've asked me, um, I think, the kinds of questions that are needed at a moment like this. So I really appreciate that. No, but I had this burning question because I think it would be so helpful for so many people who's going to listen, okay. whoever is going to be able to listen. Because you have a very um, institutional, high-level, classical, educational background. You know, top university, Rhodes Scholar, uh, you know, lecturer at Oxford, PhD at Oxford University. So, and now you are, you know, you're not only uh, running a, a fellowship for racial equity, you are a thinker in this field, you are an author, and as an author, you are a creative author, and you are an author that works in, you know, in history uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and also in, in social change and political and a political discourse. How do you keep the balance? How do you stay creative? Because often what happens is that when you have so much education that comes from institutions that were built for a different purpose, <laughs> um, how, do you, how do you nurture the ability to think um, in, in a different way, to think with novelty, to think in an unconventional way? How do you keep, how do you nurture and keep that ability? Hmm. Tell me, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I, I think for me, it's having lived on the margins, being a marginalized person in those very institutions um, and above all, wanting to live from a place that's authentic. I've um, never felt like I, could alienate myself from my inquiries. Um, and so all of my dissertations, my work, my approach to my work is rooted in um, an existential desire for integration and a genuine curiosity um, uh, and a sense of conviction in that way. And so, I really love the margins. I think that interstitial place between different disciplines, different sets of ideas is just incredibly productive. Um, putting philosophy in conversation with history from colonial Khartoum in the 20s, um, you know, putting, putting a Canadian thinker in conversation with that. You know, what, do you, what do you get when you put those two together? And so what, the classical education, as you've as you phrase it, Adama, does for for me is provide a, a, a structure, uh, a, a method, a, a pattern, um, uh, the, the the kinds of infrastructure as it were, as it were, through which a wide variety of questions that are unusual, perhaps that are uh, perhaps not supposed to be together. It, it, I, I, what I'm trying to say is that um, the structure enables me to transgress and I love transgressing. I love 
um, troubling uh, set assumptions in a way, uh, not necessarily from a place of just wanting to be disruptive for its own sake, which I'm sure um, is is great uh, for for many people. It's just not my impulse. My impulse is 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 that deep curiosity. These the questions I explore are ones that keep me up at night. Um, I that has constantly been um, what has driven me. And I, and I think perhaps there's a, a, a tremendous amount of privilege in being able to, to I guess you begin by, by you know, um, mustering a little bit of courage uh, to, to, um, to transgress a little and, and, and then one is struck by the, how that is well received or um, that resonates and that there's space for that. And so then you take more and more courage, uh, space or comfort as it were, to allow yourself to embrace that spirit of wonder. Um, but but for me, the structure is 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 the is the basic um, the basis for new patterns uh, to emerge that are that achieve both beauty and, and justice. And so those those have been the waters I've been swimming in, and um, the 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 formality hasn't constrained um, in, by by and large. I think for me, my my creativity. If anything, I think at some point. When the imposter syndrome wears off of a woman, a black woman from an obscure part of the world, as it were, all of that stuff, when, when all of those fade off, then, then a person has the confidence to say, well, actually, by being authentic, by deliberately pursuing the margins and, um, and asking questions from there, one is able to create new and interesting things, so why not keep doing it? Beautiful. Thank you so much, Sabi. Thanks, Adama. Thanks for the question. How about you? How do you keep creative? Ah, uh, me? How, yeah, how do you stay creative? <laughs> um, With all the responsibilities of being a CEO, of, you know, leading a, an institution of, of significance regionally and, and internationally. Um, I, I, think, I think that, I think that it's, um, the privilege of my work in this moment is that um, I need to do it. It's mm. the core of our mission. And so, mm. so I have the big fortune to be able to speak with people like you, to, to, to be constantly um, inspired uh, by many of the young people that uh, are part of our educational programs. Um, I'm, I think that I'm just the first beneficiary of uh, the ecosystem that the Moleskin Foundation is building and has built so far. And, uh, and that allow me to, to always try to see things um, from an unconventional perspective. And, and I really love what you say about um, finding meaning in the margins and, and, and discovering leadership and experiences in places that normally are not necessarily uh, looked at. And, uh, and, and when you do that, um, it's really incredible to see how much meaning and how much new language um, 
arise that really allow you to, to, to just build new dynamic and different patterns and just be able to imagine um, possible uh, futures. So, so I guess that I'm, I'm just very lucky at the moment uh, to, to be part of, uh, of all this. No, absolutely. I, and, and I resonate with that idea of, um, of an ecosystem, right? I think creativity requires cultivation in community. So there is something, and that's another notch for fellowship communities, <laughs> is that that's essential for the creative enterprise. Um, absolutely. And, and, and I think that is probably the, um, that is probably that there is a synthesis there between the individual community, obviously, that you represent it symbolically also in the work that you do between uh, and, 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 and more South African idea of, um, of society, of the world, compared to an American one. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and to find a synthesis in this new approach and, and this kind of very apparent duality uh, between... Uh, uh, an individual in a community and really find new ways and, and build a new language. Uh, that's, that's extremely interesting. And I think that that's also part of the, uh, again, the, the, pers the, the luck, the, the personal luck that I think you have, that I think also I have of, of, uh, of, 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 of being always, always being in the margin between yeah. cultures, uh, you know, within minorities of various kinds and not having uh, somehow the um, server structure uh, to, to dictate the assumptions that you would never have to question in your life. So, so I think that's, that's kind of the, the element that where that happened. I think it's, um, you know, it, it's just like an interesting, uh, an interesting journey when you decide to, to, to do it. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, as, as a, as a black woman doing racial equity work, it, it's, it could be easy to be at the center of that discourse. And so I'm tremendously excited about exploring how blackness exists outside of um, my experiences in the world of it. Um, and that, exercise of decentering the self and the identities connected with the self, I think can be uh, both liberating, but also uh, really important for the continual work of disruption. And I think it's so easy to reinforce the very patterns of inequality on the margins that we were, that we fight <laughs> with the center. And so I think being able to constantly uh, find the margins, to constantly make the margins the center, that is such an iterative process um, uh, that I think is so productive in general as a way of being, but I think at the heart of driving uh, certainly my own politics, but, but the work that we try to do is, you know, really explore what does increasing belonging look like how can more and more people be included in the beloved community, um, as it were, to draw bell hooks as words there. Um, and that then makes the work of um, the innovation work of centering the margins have greater meaning than just 
creativity for its own sake or innovation for its own sake. It allows it to be part of a, a larger justice project that's less about the people who are in the wrong or in the right and more about a more beautiful um, project of, of um, finding new ways of relating across differences equals. Absolutely, you mentioned, you mentioned Audre Lorde and obviously, you know, we all remember this idea that, you know, that the master's tools would never dismantle this master's house, so we need new tools, or, or you, you have on a, you know, in a different way, uh, Albert Einstein say that we will never be able to solve a problem at the same level of consciousness that created it. And, right. and the question is, what is that place where we can create those tools? What is that place where we can create that, where we can find that consciousness and that probably that starts from the margin, but then within that, there is, I think something is important. There is a intentional act of keep searching and keep developing those tools because it is always so easy to go back and re, um, you know, without even realizing, reinstalling certain mechanisms. Uh, you know, the, the master tool are so subtle <laughs> that sometimes we, we don't even realize that. So, you know, there is an element of of action. There is an element of intentionality. Uh, there is an element of really make this part of your own mission. Uh, and 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 I think it's you know it's it's important to 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 keep in our minds and in our hearts because um, that's probably one of the bigger risks that uh, uh, that we tend to um, uh, yeah to 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 encounter and uh, you know so so yeah yeah I mean I, I think as you say that about the master's tools um, you know would never um, like Audre Lorde. Um, you, you, we need to find new tools in the master's tools to, in order to dismantle his house. Othering is, has been the way the master has um, crafted his house <laughs> through colonialism, through slavery, through all. You know, so that that process of, of othering and, and allowing for a very small group of people to uh, express and um, be seen as fully human, express their humanity and be seen as fully human. There is something about flipping that othering instinct on its head and um, uh, be beyonding, uh, be beyonding, transgressing boundaries, um, expanding and, and really pushing into um, belonging and exploring what it looks like for all of us to be part of, of a community that's not, um, uh, you know, constrained by sameness. So that project feels like it has endless possibility, but it also feels like it is very much not the master's tools. <laughs> Beautiful. Sabi, again, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, we're together. Thanks for listening to our new podcast, Creativity Pioneers. If you'd like to check out other episodes and know more about our mission, please visit moleskinfoundation.org. Keep on following this podcast and share your comments on Facebook and Instagram at Moleskin Foundation. Until next time, stay creative.